The views expressed in this podcast are those of individuals and do not reflect those of the U.S. government, the Peace Corps, or the government of Panama. Hello, my name is Dan Lipkowitz and welcome to the Peace Corps Panama Files. In this podcast miniseries, each week I will be interviewing a different volunteer who is finishing up their Peace Corps service in Panama. We'll talk about where they come from, what led them to join the Peace Corps, and with each guest I'll tackle a different fundamental aspect of serving as a volunteer in Panama. We'll delve into what has been enlightening, difficult, and downright strange as they've navigated the cultural and professional journey of serving as a volunteer over the past two years. For this last episode of the Peace Corps Panama Files, I have the distinct pleasure of sitting down with Jeff Meyer. Jeff and I discussed his community of El Cedro and the aspects of the Herrera province and the Asuero region that make it the cultural heartland of Panama. While talking about the various sectors of Jeff's community, we ended up focusing on the extensive variety that can exist even within the microcosm of a single village. This led us to a conversation regarding the differences in privilege and the approaches used to unify groups within and across those borders of privilege. We ultimately ended up focusing on the importance of religion in Panama, not only as a source of spiritual guidance, but as a structure that allows a group to designate their shared values and generate a communal cohesion that applies to the everyday secular activities of the village. Jeff is an incredibly incisive person and an introspective one as well, and I hope you enjoy our conversation as much as I did. But there's that one part where he's like, Puerto Rico. Like, all right, cool. Heard the song. Thousand times still in the lyrics. I'm I'm digging as far as they're they're like uh I feel very on and off about like the popular reggae film songs like the last night the the picky song where it's like picky 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 da, 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 picky was, I'm like Ugh. I was saying I'm really tired of it and then a minute later I find myself grooving and dancing to it yeah but that one sounds like a like a really bad kid kids bop song. But Despacito True. is True. like Despacito is another level. It's got like some some groups to it. So yeah, like. for sure. Um, okay, sweet. Let's get into this. Sweet. Let's do it. I am joined here today by an absolutely fantastic volunteer, a fantastic friend, and an excellent dude just to talk to, have conversations with. Uh, let me erase this email, but yeah, so Jeff, thank you so much for joining me today to let me interview you for the Peace Corps Panama Files. It's good to be here. Thanks for inviting me. It's an honor. Yeah. It's a privilege. You are a gentleman and a scholar. Wow. Okay. <laughs> Coming out hot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so we're, this is actually our last day as Peace Corps volunteers. I think it in... Is. Was it in an hour and 23 minutes we will ring, uh, we'll have like a ceremony that officially concludes. Hopefully then it'll be real. Yeah, yeah. Hopefully then it will be real. But our time as uh, volunteers is quickly dwindling away. And we're here in the Peace Corps office in Panama City today, in Ciudad de Saber, which means the city of knowledge. Which sounds, mm. which sounds like, like a lost civilization like city, but it's really just like a so-so it's place. It's a very odd place. <laughs> it's like a... <laughs> I don't know. I don't want to say like a lot of negative things here, but like it's like it's like a... I'm whelmed. I'm like not overwhelmed. Not particularly, I'm just whelmed. Just generally whelmed. Whelmed with it. 
But yeah, so now we're here in the city, but Jeff, where were you serving as a volunteer over the past two years? Where in Panama? I served in the province of Herrera, which mm-hmm. is one of the two main uh, provinces in the Asuero Peninsula, uh, which I not totally affectionately call the ball sack of Panama. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> yeah. It's the peninsula that hangs down right in the middle of Panama, and uh, I I like to say I'm biased. I like to say it's the cultural heartland, at least of the Latino culture, in, in, a, in, a, in a lot of aspects, um, for better and worse. Um, a lot of sombrero pintao mm-hmm. down there, and um, that's kind of no but i mean i think that is that is a big that is a big and all that it's what you see kind of on the surface um but when you spend time there and get to know there's just the people down like muy buena gente just really good people who are just kind of naturally open to accepting strangers into their homes um and open to the possibility of connecting with an outsider which is something very appreciative of, and still am. Yeah, and I think that the, just speaking from a provincial perspective, uh, the Asuero, uh, which is comprised of uh, Herrera and Los Santos, does have a reputation for being the the Latino the Latino like cultural heart of yeah. the country. Um, so it's it's when the Spanish settlers first settled there yeah, in the Asuero. Exactly. Um, and sombrero pintados are these like, well, uh, traditional Panamanian, uh, kind of, uh, I don't know if it's accessory or just the thing that many men have are these yeah. large sombreros that are either white or they have these black stripes on them. And I actually think that this is a, this is a tangent thing I wasn't intending on to talk about with you today, but I'd love to Let's talk do about this. I have this theory that, uh, hats have, like, an incredibly strong... Hats are used here as a sign of status, Mm -hmm. which is something that I think isn't uh, something as uh, readily prevalent in the United States. I think, uh, like, obviously, if you see someone in a diamond-studded hat, you're going to be like, oh, that dude can afford diamond-studded hats. But um, here, I think there's definitely a hierarchy of the type of hats you have. For sure. And I think it starts lowest... You'll, there'll be the Velcro-strapped baseball cap. Exactly. I feel like that's the lowest level. Yep. Then after that, you get like snapback hat, snapback mm-hmm. baseball cap. A lot of Levi, John yeah, Deere. a lot of hats. like Levi, yep. like these denim hats with like leather uh, uh, brims on them. And then you'll get uh, like a, a flat brim closed back hat. Mm-hmm. That's also like a sign of like, oh, that dude. Yeah, like a baseball Yeah, that's, that's a little bit farther up. Yeah, like especially if it's a particular MLB team. And then at the highest echelon of that hierarchy is the sombrero pintado uh-huh. or the sombrero blanco. Yes, for sure. Um, I, I've, I mean, I have no evidence to support this, but I have a theory that the reason that hats are used as a status, status symbol as opposed to maybe in like the U.S., you could think of like suits uh, are, are at usually the very least a tie. Yeah, or at the very least a tie <laughs> yeah. is just because of the climate down here. It's yeah. so hot that if someone's wearing a tie or wearing a suit coat, 
they wouldn't aguantar. You know, they, yeah. they just like wouldn't, it Sounds would just right be so sweaty. Yeah. Um, and I think that they really just took advantage of, of what they had at their disposal and what would work uh-huh. in the climate here. For sure. Um, and there's obviously, there's ranging, uh, like, degrees of, of the sombreros, of, like, how nice they are, how fine they're... Um, the bellota, which exactly. is the plant that they use to stitch it with. Yeah, um, absolutely. So I, I got two sombreros in my community made by a community member, and I paid $60, which for a sombrero where I was living was, like, a pretty good price. Uh, and that brings it back to the kind of status symbol a lot of guys, even, you know, subsistence farmers living in the campo, living in rural Panama, will drop $150 on, on a nice sombrero. Yeah. And um, sometimes they'll go out of the way to put a lining in the middle so the sweat doesn't, um, I was about to say danyard, doesn't uh, affect, doesn't stain, there yeah, we go. Doesn't stain, yeah. Doesn't stain uh, the sombrero. Mm-hmm. I would say it's possible that like the hierarchy you were talking about only applies to the campo because here in Panama City, Absolutely. no one really rocks the sombrero pintado. It's That's kind of just true. like there's a little bit of uh, yeah. And I was I was talking to Emma yesterday, and we talked about like the Panama City itself is just another entity. It's a different world. exactly. Um, it's like not in the same country sometimes. Um, and also, like you said, each province has kind of its unique uh, character to it. Uh, could you tell me a little bit about specifically your community? For sure. Uh, in Herrera, what was it like? What did the people do there? How big was it? What kind of structure did it have? So I was living and working in El Cedro, mm-hmm. uh, which is the town. It's comprised of 10 or 11 different sectors. Uh, some of these sectors had one house, two or three or four houses. Mm-hmm. Uh, in total, six, about 600 people. It's pretty rural. Uh, almost two hours, two hours in bus, hour and a half in a, if you have a private car, mm-hmm. from Chitre, the provincial capital. Okay. Um, so it's out there, kind of in the rolling hills. It's beautiful out there. Um, but the pavement road does get out there. El Cedro is the last community of the paved road before the road hits uh, the river, Rio La Villa. Mm-hmm. So El Cedro is just north of Rio La Villa, which um, is the main water source of the Rio La Villa watershed, which supplies water to almost the entire Azuero Peninsula. So, very ecologically important area. Um, economically made up primarily of subsistence farmers. Mm-hmm. That's kind of been changing. The The road was paved, the paved road was put in about 10 years ago. Um, and since that, uh, little by little, um, people have been moving out and finding better paying jobs in Chichire, the provincial capital, or sometimes even in Panama City, uh, especially the younger generation, mm-hmm. my age, in the, in the mid late twenties, so definitely or even is, younger. Um, there's a, a you know, there's a flight there, of the youth from the flight of the youth. Exactly, you can work for twelve dollars a day, pinando machete, mm-hmm. working in the campo, working which is hard. just yeah, clean it, which is chopping grass or, or cleaning agricultural land with machete. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, or you can go out to the provincial capital and, for example, do construction work for twenty dollars a day. Exactly. Um, so. In that context, it's a pretty pretty easy choice for them. Yeah, and mm-hmm. I think, I think especially in your community, uh, your community relatively is a larger one, mm-hmm. and also is pretty spread out and has sectors. Very of spread out, yeah. And in a previous uh, episode, I talked to Julie about how I definitely get the sense in my province in Panama Oeste that the development is like very haphazard. 
Uh-huh. Uh, so you might have a road that's well-paved. Transportation can get in and out very easily, but you mm-hmm. won't have electricity. Or mm-hmm. you might have consistent clean water and electricity, but you have to hike in. Yeah. And I feel like me, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think from our past experience, you said that there's a pretty uh, significant diversity of how developed different sectors. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And I, I really enjoyed that episode with Julia mm-hmm. and especially that part. Because it, it's just very, exactly, very random, uh, di- unequal development, distribution of, of the money that's coming in uh, from Canal. As a country, Panama is doing great economically. But when you're talking about developing in the Campo, yeah, it's a great, yeah. that's exactly how it is. So the center, the El Cedro Centro, the center sector, is pretty well developed. Mm-hmm. Most, most of the... Um, I don't want to say richer because they're not rich, mm-hmm. but economically well-off families tend to live in in the center of the community, primarily uh, houses made of concrete, uh, cinder blocks, bloques, mm-hmm. um, and other sectors. You walk off the paved road and you have to walk an hour, one sometimes two hours mm-hmm. to get to a house that's just way out there made out of wood, and very often doesn't have electricity. Yeah. Um, and that was a, a, a theme of my service, was trying to think about and connect to those all of the people in my community of, of varying backgrounds. And there's a really fascinating, often kind of depressing history of, of politics in my community where mm-hmm. the kind of well-off people in the more accessible parts of the community receive the benefits of the development not so much the people who are living yeah. out there. And it's know? and a lot of it, I mean, you you had the privilege of actually getting to know your representante. Yeah. You know, you're represented very well. You actually lived with her. Mm-hmm. Uh, her sister. Her, yeah, she was your host sister. A big sis. And I think, not to like, I I wouldn't imply that, uh, that there's like rampant, rampant, uh, corruption and that all mm-hmm. the representantes are bad. I mean, just like in any government, there are good apples, bad apples. But I think that there is a serious issue in that the people that uh, already have some development are much better at soliciting more development. Exactly. Uh-huh. And then the people that are living really in in the the deepest poverty just don't have the resources even to communicate yeah. uh, what they need. Um, so you end up actually exacerbating that uh, inequality because you have people just gaining more and more and more, mm-hmm. leaving the the other people that initially maybe there wasn't that big of a difference between the development, yeah. but a certain group gets left behind, gets left mm-hmm. in the dust in that way. Very true. And yeah. I think yeah. uh, my host sister is doing a great job and is working really hard. Mm-hmm. I mean, I didn't get to know her that well early on when I was living with their family. They were my host family because she was out of the house from 5 a.m. to 9 p.m. Mm-hmm doing everything for everyone, or at least trying to. Um, past representantes haven't even tried, so she's trying, but it's still it's still very true what you're saying, because I've talked to her about this, that she's trying very hard to help everybody, and, and some people just have such a deep uh, distrust in help that's coming from afuera, that's coming, like, outside help, mm-hmm. um, that they just, they don't feel like they've ever been included, and when someone tries to include them, there's a certain hesitation there, mm-hmm. um, and she's there's only so much she feels like she can do to be inclusive, yeah. um, especially when you're talking about someone has to walk 
an hour and a half, two hours um, to come to a meeting, for example, it's hard. Yeah. It's a, it's a huge commitment. And especially, uh, yeah, I think representantes here in Panama also take on a very comprehensive role in a community. They, they aren't just uh, bringing in, like, projects and serving as, like, political representatives, but also, you know, they give people rides to, to events. Oh, yeah. They, Giving people rides is a huge part. Is a, is a huge part. So Getting just, copies of someone's license, helping someone get an, an, an older, illiterate member of the community get identification. Exactly. Uh, and really working one-on-one with individuals in that way mm-hmm. uh, without uh, a huge support system. Either. Mm-hmm. So so just, it's it's a very difficult job to be representative. She's done a great job creating her equipo de trabajo, like her work mm-hmm. team, mm-hmm. Uh, people she can trust to help her with her projects in the community, uh, people she can delegate responsibility to. Um, some people in the community feel left out of the group mm-hmm. and, and see that the group is made up primarily of her extended family, and they feel like there's a certain uh, privileged group. Exactly, exactly, <laughs> yeah. which isn't, isn't at all her intention, but yeah. that's kind of how it's viewed. Yeah. Um, so you're in Herrera, you're, uh, yeah, uh, but you come from, uh, back in the States, you come from a place that's very different from the ball sack of (laughs) Panama, uh, both in its climate and in its culture. Can you tell us a little about where you're from in the, in the U.S.? I am from Vermont. Nice. Uh, I believe, I mean, it's kind of. We win or lose every per capita st- statistic, but <laughs> I believe we have most Peace Corps volunteers per capita. Really? I believe. That's a, I mean, alternative facts, who knows, but <laughs> <laughs> we can look into that. Yeah, uh, I, I loved my upbringing in Vermont, uh, I think. I went to school, I went to Denison University in Ohio, and I came back from Denison, especially with the soap flat out there, man, just coming back to the, the mountains, Green Mountains, um, after college especially was when I really developed a deep love and appreciation for my upbringing in Vermont. That's awesome. Um, and I also have an understanding of how privileged my upbringing was mm-hmm. um, and how white. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's, a, that's well. a good point. <laughs> and I think the, the all of us, or at least the majority of us, have been exposed to... Uh, an amount of diversity that we've never seen before in our lives uh-huh. and during our And we're the ones that have that stick out. Yeah, exactly. In the extreme minority, mm-hmm. um, which is uh, uh, part of the experience that I was always looking for. And I very much appreciate it. It's a challenge for sure. Um, but it forces you to grow and become a much more humble and understanding person. Absolutely. It's definitely a humbling experience to serve as a volunteer. Um, what initially piqued your interest in in Peace Corps? What brought you to this country? I know you had kind of a tumultuous <laughs> application process with a couple delays. It did. Um, I don't know if you want to get into that and explain that a little bit to us. But first, first, just what initially piqued your interest? Okay. Um, I studied abroad my spring semester, my junior year in college. I studied in Costa Rica. Uh-huh. Um, and that was a... Tr- truly transformative experience. That's when I had actually waited to the last possible moment to declare environmental studies as my major. Mm-hmm. 
Um, what else were you just out of curiosity? What else? Were you I was thinking of philosophy, which I ended up minoring in. Cool. Um, so I did some political science. Kind of became a little disillusioned with that, <laughs> <laughs> for reasons maybe for another podcast. Um, <laughs> but yeah, going to Costa Rica not only like solidified my passion um, for environmentalism, but also for traveling and sticking myself out there. Not so much traveling as putting myself out there and trying to understand a new culture. And mm-hmm. I just remember, man, this is what, like five years ago, yeah. Um, just remember just the newness of everything, mm-hmm. of living in an, it was only like four months down there, but just everything was new and challenging. You're forced to kind of rethink and evaluate um, the assumptions your that you norms held. and your assumptions, yeah. exactly. And I felt like I just had only kind of like dipped my toes in that. I was studying abroad in Costa Rica, and I, and I wanted to be thrown out there and challenged. Fully immersed in and Yeah, in, in a more um, comprehensive way. Cool. So, and, so that coupled with the fact that a, a really good friend of mine in, in college um, served in Paraguay. A good friend of mine who was kind of a role model. Cool. Um, in my fraternity. Cool. And, um, so came back from Costa Rica, started my senior year with the idea of doing the Peace Corps. Mm -hmm. I went back and forth on it a lot and kind of eventually came to the decision, like, this is, this is what I want to do. Um, there's also kind of a deep sense of, of, of giving back, of, of kind of offsetting my privilege, I guess. Mm -hmm. Maybe that's a weird way to put it. Um, but diving into a new culture and kind of like testing my limits in terms of how, how can I help uh, community become more uh, connected to their natural environment and, and, and uh, taking care of that environment. Yeah. And yeah, it was, uh, we served 27 months, and I think that was about the length of my application process as well. Mm-hmm. I was ready to go in February of 2014 to serve in Panama. Uh-huh. This would have been the... Uh, Group 74, which is the, the group that arrived here a, a year, year before, before we ended up mm-hmm. arriving. Uh, and late that December, I broke my arm skiing. <laughs> and, um, yeah, that was a bummer. Uh, but in the end, I'm happy it happened. Um, because I waited a year. Ended up, because I was just very attached to the idea of doing community, of being in the Community Environmental Conservation Program in Panama. So I waited a year, came down, was part of Group 76, which has since become the closest big group of friends I've had. That's that's awesome. And I think definitely um, that idea of wanting to, I don't know if the, I don't know what the right word is, whether it's like counteract that privilege or whether it's just to uh, utilize that privilege exactly. that you have. Yeah, to serve other point. people mm-hmm. is is something that I think uh, definitely resonates with me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know. I, Utilize my education and my perspective. That's a good way to put it. Yeah. yeah. And I was recently reading about Teddy Roosevelt, who usually has, you know, uh, a reputation for, you know, being a rough rider and very, like, an action-based man. And mm-hmm. uh, a lot of criticisms of him have been like, well, he, like, what, he wasn't exactly, like, the most, like, like a, a deep thinker, necessarily. Um, but recently, after reading some Doris Kearns Goodwin, uh, or Doris, yeah, 
uh, I found, like, a lot of writings by him that are actually, like, pretty philosophical. Mm -hmm. Um, And one of the things that he talks about is precisely that, uh, about utilizing one's privilege. And he ultimately thought that the greatest uh, difficulty and accomplishment of America was, I think the term he used was creating a fellow feeling amongst Mm -hmm. men. Mm-hmm. And the idea of people coming from privilege or people coming from different backgrounds and different experience, he viewed it as a he viewed it as necessary that those people interact with each other. Uh-huh. In a, and through sharing, through having shared experiences, they would have a shared understanding and a shared empathy for one another. And that was really what nationalism was to him more than just chanting rah rah red white and blue. Yeah, um, the but, diversity that's kind of inherent in that idea of nationalism is, I think in my opinion, the, the proper conception of, of that American ideal. Yeah. You know? And the idea of action serving as the glue that binds that diversity together. Exactly. And, and I, so it makes a lot of sense now that it's like, oh, he, he, that's why he, like this like rich white dude from the East Coast, from New yeah. York, was like, I want to go out on a horse into, into the West. I want to go into the frontier. I want to mm-hmm. be with miners, people that have no concept of what his life uh, back in New York is like, and he had no concept of what their life at that point in exactly. Their... It, it goes beyond a sense of adventure, mm-hmm. which is important and certainly there. Mm-hmm. But just developing a connection, um, either despite or because of differences, is I think something he thought about. Mm-hmm. At least in my understanding, for you just told me. <laughs> <laughs> but also, I think what John F. Kennedy was going for exactly when he started the Peace Corps. Yeah, and that's something I've kept kind of in the back of my head um, as I've kind of struggled in my two years, my moments of struggle, mm-hmm. um, because there's always this desire to measure your progress um, based on tangible results that you can quantify. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's been the, the best part of having to say goodbye is because it's it, it becomes plainly obvious the, the extent to which I have connected with these people mm-hmm. and developed a relationship um, that is going to continue on no matter how far we are apart. Yeah. Um, and that's, I think, the most, in my opinion, the most important part of friendship is just, or, I'm sorry, the most important part of the Peace Corps is just fostering friendship between Americans and, in this case, Panamanians. And a certain understanding that we're different and we should appreciate those differences, but underneath it all, we're all human. We're all the same. Yeah. There's and a mutual respect there that is deserved on both sides, no matter your uh, philosophical, political differences. Absolutely. And I think that that's, uh, that's actually kind of the main thing that I wanted to talk about with you today is one thing that I've recognized, I want to bounce this idea off you, mm-hmm. uh, is I found that the way, like, we're, we're having a conversation now, and we're talking about in the term, in the, using terms about uh, John F. Kennedy, Theodore Roosevelt, kind of di- diversity, integration, um, but I found, talking to my community members that don't have, that haven't studied the same things that I've studied, don't have the same cultural background as I do, they use different terms to represent that type of connectivity. Mm-hmm. Um, and often, what I find is, it's, the terms that they use are often in the context of uh, religion or family. Mm-hmm. That if they want to represent, if they want to talk about closeness, if they want to talk about intimacy and valuing another human being or another group, 
people talk about them in terms of like God blesses these people mm-hmm. or this person is my brother, this person is my primo, yes. uh, my cousin. Uh-huh. Um, and uh, I'm going to dive off on a tangent real quick, but Got I'm going to loop it back to try and make this like a more comprehensive conversation. But I was recently uh, studying or reading I'm just studying. Your studying sounds so formal, <laughs> and I'm not in school right now. So, <laughs> I was, I was you are to, a scholar. Uh, <laughs> that's two times in one podcast. <laughs> so flattered. Um, I was reading about uh, religious mysticism mm-hmm. and kind of the more than just how it differs from strict uh, religious interpretation, um, how it serves uh, communities in a secular way. Mm-hmm. And essentially, it, it was looking at uh, Kabbalah, which is Judaism, mm-hmm. Sufism uh, with Islam, um, and then also kind of like the occult that's attached with Christianity. Mm-hmm. And it was talking about when religion becomes so entrenched with politics, and the religion is kind of uh, propagated in a way where it's, you must follow these rules, you must follow this strict uh, code of conduct. Mm-hmm then the religion just naturally, the people that follow that religion naturally seek an outlet for the mystery of what, uh, I guess, initially attracts people mm-hmm. to like that belief and that faith. And that often finds itself, rather than in strict religion, in kind of this mystic spirituality. Mm-hmm. So there's kind of this dichotomy of religiosity versus spirituality. Mm-hmm. And I found that in my community... There are people that never go to church, don't know a single word of scripture, but they're deeply, uh, they're deeply spiritual, mm-hmm. and they're deeply the 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 way that they view is they're deeply committed to their Christianity. Mm-hmm. Um, and I find that just from my own observations, it seems like that Christianity, their their conception of Christianity, is serving that communal role for them, mm-hmm. and is serving as the we were talking about shared experience it's serving as that glue that allows them to to interact with other people. Yeah, the common ground. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you've experienced that or you've any thoughts on that. Yeah. Yeah. It's really interesting you bring that up because I've been thinking a lot about how in the past I kind of differentiated religion and spirituality by saying religion is a group Mm -hmm. and like you have to prescribe to the code of conduct and I can be a spiritual person and act and do so in a pure, in like a deeply individual sense like pure freedom Uh and i think i don't agree with that at all anymore i think the common ground is between organized religion religiosity and spirituality is a sense of community a sense of belonging Mm -hmm. whether that community is in el cedro or some sort of you know the community of god to some Absolutely. sort of, of, of connection to other beings. Um, and I think that's what people are ultimately looking for in, in Panama with um, the kind of spirituality that they embrace uh, outside of, of the Catholic Church. And there are a lot of people that are Catholic and were baptized and confirmed and all that, but don't, don't go to church. At least in, in my community, it uh-huh. wasn't an expectation that you had to be at church every Sunday. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a little bit of, of like logistics there just because the, the padre, the father, mm-hmm. 
there's one in the whole district and he has to and he's going around to churches in all of the different towns so it's really hard there's a process for organizing planning a, a misa a mass yeah um, so that that plays into it a little bit but there like I was saying there isn't a huge expectation of commitment uh, on a regular basis to, to being at Catholic events but the underlying faith the underlying spirituality uh, I think is always always there yeah um, and most prevalent in in the sense of, in, in what am I trying to say um, I think like, I, it's like most for me it's most apparent like the desire they show mm-hmm it comes from a place of, of connection. Yeah, I'd say I definitely had that same experience in my community. Yeah, we, we didn't have a padre at all. He would only, we'd have to kind of call one in for very special events. Um, and I would say the same thing. There was no there was no expectation in my community, like, you have to go to church. Mm-hmm. But I would say that there was the expectation of, like, you must be a Christian. Exactly. So, so yeah. and, and I use that word Christian in, like, a very broad sense. Yes. Uh, and... I think that 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 was kind of a that that's a placeholder for mm-hmm. a lot of like cultural like a lot of cultural connectivity that that we see in our community. And when people ask me about my like religiosity, mm-hmm. there was kind of a hope there that I was also also Catholic, but there wasn't a hope that they wouldn't like give me a quiz. You know, it was just it was just the basics. You know, like exactly. Jeffrey, like do. You, do you believe in God, uh, the resurrection of Christ? Just like kind of like the basics for them. Yeah. Um, that kind of hold up their Catholic faith. Um, do you celebrate Semana Santa? You know, which is Holy Week here is, is is really big, which I think kind of helps what we're talking about. Kind of reinforce what we're talking about here. Um, the sense of community of people and that I is think, shown during Semana Santa is is remarkable. Yeah, and I can say, I mean, I'm. Uh, I can reveal it on this podcast. I'm not a Christian. Uh, I was raised in a Jewish household. Um, and I went down there, and they asked me if I was Christian. And for the sake of integrating myself in my community, because it, it would just be, like, such a, a shock uh, to my community member, I told them that I was Catholic. Yeah. And I spent the past two years, even though I formed incredibly close, incredibly profound connections with people, just as deep as, as, my, as my close friends back in the U.S., um, it, I that was something that I had to that I had to maintain that yeah. I'm a Catholic mm-hmm. and like you said they, I mean they didn't quiz me on it um, I even they even saw me cross myself incorrectly once yeah. and they were just like they're like oh no that's not an issue <laughs> like, that's fun yeah um, but I I, I, mean, I said I wasn't Catholic yeah Shh, oh no but oh no. oh I I think sorry a friend just stopped in there but I was gonna say yes yeah, so they didn't like. I crossed myself incorrectly, and they're like, that's fine. Um, but I actually viewed it as a much more uh, kind of, I don't know, I viewed it as a, a very positive outlook on Christianity because your actions spoke much louder than maybe your 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 kind of uh, factual knowledge. Yeah. It was kind of wisdom speaking more than, than knowledge uh-huh. in that if you did good things in your community, if you did well if you helped people out people would say oh yeah he's a good christian mm-hmm. rather than like he knows the book of matthew exactly um so i don't well, know but... i found that yeah i found that very it was it was just very just 
in the way that they that they mm-hmm. view Christianity. Yeah, I see that. Yeah. Um, from the start, I told people that I wasn't Catholic, and then they would ask, "Well, are you Christian?" Mm-hmm. Um, early on, I just said, "Yeah, yeah." I, I grew up in a Christian church. I don't know how to explain it, which is true. I I, I was raised in a Unitarian Universalist congregation um, in in Vermont. Which, you know, I don't know how to even begin saying Unitarian Universalist in Spanish. And if I did, the people in where I was living wouldn't have known. But those were some of the most rewarding conversations. When I, when I did have that confiance, when I had the trust and connection with people, and I went for it. Mm-hmm. I grew up in a church that has roots in Christianity, was how I would begin. Yeah. Um, but, we don't ha- but we don't have, like, a certain set of beliefs that you have to subscribe to, like... We have a strong sense of community, but we believe that everyone is on their own, like, individual spiritual journey, mm-hmm. and it, you're free to also be a part of, like, another congregation, and it's, and it's more of uh, a give and take. Absolutely. Um, because we believe that every religion has value for certain people in a certain context, and we can learn and grow from that. And it was rare, but on a couple of occasions, I expressed that eloquently in Spanish, <laughs> And people responded to it, and that and those were some of the most uh, like rewarding, challenging, and then rewarding conversations and, uh, I had. In my yeah. Community. And I've been, yeah, I even, I mean, as a Jew down here, I have not experienced uh, any. I mean, I haven't been readily uh, saying that <laughs> talking about my Judaism, but yeah. I haven't experienced like any anti-Semitism, and I've never seen anyone insulting. Other, other religions, whether it's like Islam, Judaism, other forms mm-hmm. of Christianity, it's always just been a matter of like describing the the roots that bind all those religions together mm-hmm. and how they serve as a community. And it makes com- and it makes complete sense in that. Um, so, uh, not to get down <laughs> to to bring the mood down, but I did see a little bit of that mm-hmm. of the of the fighting. Okay, um, evangelicalism has been growing in El, in El Cesaro. Uh-huh. Um, kind of like a real, kind of like an American version of, of evangelicalism. Uh, very kind of like individual and vertical, like me and God and the devil and a lot about, uh, like personal salvation. Yeah. And the way they often try to recruit people to join, uh, their growing movement as mm-hmm. they call it. Um, was about criticizing the Catholics' community's like lack of commitment um, to the Bible and, and mm-hmm. the religious ideals or the code of contact, contact conduct. Mm-hmm. Um, and then on the other other end, the Catholics would sometimes make fun of the evangelicals about um, their kind of like lack of community. Um, that being said. By the time I left, the evangelicals did have a real strong sense of, of community, and and I went to a few of their services uh-huh. and was a lot more comfortable than I was at first, because I, I first went to the evangelical service in my community, like my first week in sight, and was just so uh, intimidated by it, and, and, and worried, because it's not my cup of tea, it's yeah. very intense, a lot of yelling and kind of like fear-mongering type stuff there, which is not my thing, uh, religiously speaking. Um, but by the end of my service, I, I could see, I could see it. Yeah. There was, 
they provided pe- people with a sense of certainty and righteousness that was really important for a lot of people who, a lot of poor, like insecure members of this community in the campo. Mm-hmm. And once they had developed a sense of community, you could see that as kind of the fundamental reason that it was growing was that it was providing these people who had maybe had a, maybe a falling out or, or for whatever reason weren't super involved with the Catholic Church, another outlet. That being yeah. said, there's also people who go to both yeah. services. I would... Uh, so, so it's been fascinating. I would say, yeah, my community is like really, really strongly Catholic. There, There is no uh, evangelical church in my community, but uh, our neighboring community is a small evangelical church. Mm-hmm. And I remember there, during my two years, there weren't many people with two families uh, started attending evangelical services there. And just passing at their house, it came up in conversation. And I asked out of curiosity, I said, why, like, what changed your mind? What, like, what made you switch? Not mm-hmm. trying to, like, being sure that I wasn't condescending or yeah. making it really, uh, like, an curiosity. interrogation. Yeah, just that curiosity. And it was interesting that neither of the two families gave me really uh, a reason grounded in, like, I believe that they're, uh, that, like, they're more accurately portraying the word of God. Mm-hmm. Both families told me they're supporting us and our family more. So that mm-hmm. they, they were yeah. filling like that community role uh-huh. more. Which I, I think speaks a lot to just, just like what we were talking about. That that really, whether it's evangelicals, whether it's uh, Catholics, there's also Jehovah's Witnesses like down yeah. here now. There's there's tons of different... Uh, and yeah, there's kind of, it's kind of in a, in a strange... Uh, state of flux right now Mm -hmm. um but yeah i think that the the way at least that it seems to me that my community members are interpreting that ongoing like kind of uh combination of religions that exist all at once Mm -hmm. is the role that they serve in that community context and and i think Despite what I said about there being a little bit of fighting in my community, a lot of times it w- it came off as rather lighthearted. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, like, haha, like, he's a Catholic who believes in saints. Like, I'm an evangelical, I don't believe in saints. I believe we should all find salvation our own way. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, and it didn't come off as, as like, venomous at all. Mm-hmm. And and I think that underneath it all is a, is a similar, kind of going back to what you were saying, what you started off with, mm-hmm. there's a similar kind of sense of uh, mysticism or spirituality mm-hmm. that that transcends all. And of like us. their their vocabulary doesn't really change, yeah, based on whether they're Catholic or evangelical. And like you were saying, their basic kind of understanding of just being a good person, mm-hmm. of of having some sort of relationship with a higher being. Mm-hmm. And, and having that some sort of humility there is the most important part. And, you know, whether you're Catholic or evangelical or Jehovah's Witness, just certain sayings don't change. Like, like only God knows. Solo Dios sabe. Like, we have to be... We have Dios to be primero. Humble. Dios primero. <laughs> like, first. Yeah. Uh, que vaya con Dios. Like, that's a, exactly. a proper way to end a conversation. Like, go with God. Mm-hmm. And they're kind of basic vocabulary and understanding of being a good, just a good person is pretty consistent, I've found. Yeah, and I think that that, I, I do feel that way, and I think that that, I mean, not to speak for all of 
Central and South America, because I don't want to turn into a monolith, but I think that that's partially the region, reason why, especially in Catholicism, liberation theology has caught on so yeah. strongly down here, is because of that kind of like socialist community-based uh, interpretation mm-hmm. of, of uh, religious scripture has really resonated with the people in that way. Because mm-hmm. that completely coincides with, with the lexicon that they're using and the way that they're interpreting the value of religion yeah. in their community. Um, so yeah, that's been a fascinating experience. It, incredibly eye-opening for, sure. uh, for me. And uh, like you said, also like deeply humbling. Very, um, very much so. What you're, You have uh, a fantastic ability to uh, talk about a wide range of things in a very uh, casual, amiable way. So, I mean, I wouldn't necessarily be super comfortable about talking deeply about uh, religious uh, diversity with with lots of other people, afraid that I would maybe uh, offend someone and uh, get on their goat the wrong Mm -hmm. way. But with you, I feel like very comfortable uh, having this conversation, even if I make missteps, not that that you'll understand that. Mm -hmm, Um, And I think that that covers, no, no. And I think that that also covers not just like religion, but with a wide range of really complex uh, concepts. You have an excellent, very uh, unique ability to, to turn them uh, in, to, to communicate them in a, in a really uh, friendly, casual format, which makes it, which makes it great to, to have you there as, as a communicator sharing complex and really, really important ideas. I think there's been a lot of trial and error there. In my past. <laughs> well, <laughs> I, used to, I think I used to come on real hot with a lot of that stuff, and, and through experience, I've kind of learned that to there has to be some degree of of uh, how do you, ca- casuality. <laughs> no, I think that I you think know, it's really to it's, be able to connect there. You have to be willing to like make mistakes and be willing to to change your mind to have someone change your yeah. mind. But I think it's really just a. Uh, ability to one be very open-minded, so be a great listener. Two, be eloquent in expressing your own thoughts, and three, you've taken the introspective time to develop your own beliefs and develop your own thoughts so that you can express them eloquently. Um, so, with this new experience, spending two years in Panama, seeing diversity both within the country and even within your community, amongst the sectors and the different experiences you've had there, how are you going to take back? what you've learned, whether it's connected to religion or whether it's not, mm-hmm. uh, but kind of those trans, kind of those interwoven facets of, of the importance of the community, how are you going to take that back to the U.S. and apply it? It's a good question, and I'm glad that I kind of prepared earlier today with <laughs> my exit interview with Francisco, our program manager. Our we, boss, Our boss. Yeah. Because <laughs> um, he was asking me the similar, a similar question, um, and I'm going to give you a similar answer. Which, which is that I think I've become a much more patient and understanding person when I, when I encounter or start to connect, develop a relationship with someone who, who might, for example, have a extremely like homophobic streak, okay, or or express some some sort of thing I, like I find like racist or express a philosophical or political view that I don't agree with. Mm-hmm. And I think I've, I've learned, especially here, to avoid being combative. Um, 
I remember a while back we were talking, you talked about how being a Peace Corps volunteer and serving these communities teaches you sometimes how to like compartmentalize relationships. Yeah, absolutely. Which is really hard sometimes. Super difficult. You have to rely on certain community leaders to get stuff done. Not just to get stuff done, but to be respected in the community. Mm-hmm. And they might say something that you just don't agree with. At really all. at a fundamental level. At as a fu- well. Exactly, at a fundamental level. And you have to learn how to accept the fact that there's a big difference there. Mm. But coming out hot and saying, you're wrong, I don't agree with you, isn't going to accomplish anything. Yeah. And that's something I'm going to really try hard to bring back. Hell, especially with the, the political climate we're dealing with. Um, I would like to pursue, at least in the short term, mm-hmm. uh, if not a career, uh, an experience in environmental activism. Yeah. And I think environmentalism, the environmental movement in America can sometimes be just like so focused on the left and, you know, this, what am I trying to say? It just, it does a hard time. It's not very good at reaching out to people that might be open to changing their minds. You know what I'm trying to say? I I think that really it's, well, essentially what you referenced, that it's a matter of patience. Yeah. I feel like a lot of times uh, with environmental activism, uh, there's the, the message that's often communicated is like, you don't believe science, it's fucking science. Exactly. Like, so, you, so then those people are all tossed asunder. And I think that both of us, when we talk about like compartmentalizing relationships, have been in that situation where we're working with people, they're super positive in myriad ways, and then there are some aspects of them that just really, to our core, are, are you know, they're counter... They're, they're counterintuitive to what we believe. And our reaction can yeah. be to put up a wall. And the reaction can be either to put up a wall and just say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to separate myself from this person, or you just you confront them in a very strong way. And I think that in at least my experience, that has not, neither of those two options worked. No. So really it's a matter of kind of <laughs> linking it back to religion. It's kind of a matter of faith. Mm-hmm. Of if, I have, if I continue working with this person, and I have the patience to rather than say, you know, like maybe gay people are equal to straight people mm-hmm. uh, and it, just saying it in subtle ways over and over again, rather than attacking them being like, how can you not believe that these exactly. people deserve the same fundamental rights that we mm-hmm. have? Then you can, then you have the faith that poco a poco, little by little, mm-hmm. because they consider us part of that tight knit community mm-hmm. that we will be able to change them. You gotta Not pick and choose your moments. Yeah, absolutely. And the better you get to know someone, the more you connect with them, the better you are at identifying the right moments. And the and more the moments you are you'll taking have. advantage of those moments. And the more moments you'll have exactly. as well. Yeah. So I think there's definitely that aspect of patience in uh, that's needed in environmental activism in the United States. Yeah. Uh, especially if you're gonna go to places where the majority of the people don't hold, you know. Coastal elite views. Exactly. That's what <laughs> yeah. I was trying to say. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> if you have, if you're gonna go, like how uh, we need to connect with what a uh, flyover country. Yeah. That's called. Yeah. You know, no. Like I mean. I no. I think that that there's like if you're going deep into the if you're going into deep Mississippi and not to like rag on Mississippi but just uh, a traditional like southern state that's like the majority of the people just like don't believe in climate change. Mm-hmm. 
don't go in there just screaming science yeah, facts. You're going to have to... You, your point of connection isn't going to be check out this Bill Nye video. Yeah, yeah. No, it's going to be something It's going to... It probably won't even start with environmentalism. No. It'll probably start no. with... It's got to earn their trust. And then after that, little by little, once they trust you on other things, then you can begin... Once they trust you on things that aren't as controversial, mm-hmm. you can begin to breach those topics that do uh, have... Uh, those kind of schisms of viewpoints. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that's awesome. I'm super, I cannot imagine a, a better job cut out for you, especially considering how uh, wonderful a communicator you are and how just naturally uh, buoyant your personality is and lifting up other people and making them feel at ease and, and uh, a friend. Um, Thank you. Yeah. Appreciate it. <laughs> no, um, yeah, I've been lucky to to be able to see that in you the past two years. Um, and so I guess to end this podcast, uh, we'll just end with like quick first quick rapid fire question. What's your favorite Panamanian food? I mean, we talked about it on the bonus podcast. Yeah. I think it's got to be sopa. It's got sopa or sancocho. Sopa. I sopa. prefer a sopa. Okay. Throw some squash in there. All right. Second rapid fire question. One typical band. Rest of your life. You can only listen to them. Which one's it going to be? One typical band? Yeah. I got to pick one? You got to pick one group. Whew. Me? I'm sort of sat there. I'm saying like Nito Vargas. Y las, y las Plumas Negras? Like that, that's mine. Yeah. Right, right? Oof. Can I name three? <laughs> you can name your you can name your top three. I'm not gonna. Right, so it's, I, I like I've come to appreciate Nenito, Alfredo, and Ulpiano. Ulpiano and Alfredo, especially, are like very like upbeat. They're they're the party animal dudes of the typical scene. Yeah. I think I, I'm gonna go with Nenito as well because No Me Quieres Tanto. Mm-hmm. It's this typical song that's been stuck in my head just the most <laughs> amount of time since I've been here. Um, um, okay. Yeah, one there, one last rapid fire question. What is your favorite Panamanian word? That's another good one. Can I name 12? No. Um, I would have to say Barbaro. Barbaro. Oh, and you want to explain to our, our listeners what that means? It's a great word. It's <laughs> <laughs> a good choice. I, I was uh, actually showing a community member um, some pictures. I wanted to show them some pictures of snow mm-hmm. and was going through my family's WhatsApp group. And my family's been renovating, my parents have been renovating their house. I'm going to call it their house now because, yeah. yeah, you know. Yeah. I'm 25. It's our house. Well, I mean, you haven't been there. I'm going to move back in, right? <laughs> no. um, and I came across a picture of the house. My friends are like, "Oh, Jeffrey, su, su familia tiene una casa muy bárbara." <laughs> <laughs> and I said, "My parents that like my mom knows a little Spanish, um, and my dad doesn't. My dad and or my dad or my brother, I forget. It was just like a Barbara house. Like, what the hell are you talking about? Who's Barbara?" <laughs> but, but, Barbara, it, it, it's like, it, it means barbaric, but that's not really the sense in which they use it. It's just kind of like crazy or impressive or strong. 
It's like it's like so like if if it really uh, sunny day like oh the sun is that bug bottle. Yeah, and I think also I've heard it used. It's not used that often in my community, but I love when it is used. Yeah. It's used kind of in the same way that in the United States we might use ill. Like dude, yeah. dude, that beat is ill. You could also be like yeah, that beat este ritmo es bárbaro. La canción está bien bárbaro. Yeah. Oh. Um. But yeah, they also you. say bayaco. That's a little bayaco kind of very similar. Crazy. <laughs> um, Are you gonna ask me what my middle name is? I I it was gonna ask you your middle name is, but I already know that your middle name is Jeffrey Christian Meyer. There it is. So full name, Mr. Jeffrey Christian Meyer. Thank you so much for joining me today for just a great conversation. I really enjoyed this. Mr. Daniel Isaac Lipkowitz, it's been a pleasure. I, there wouldn't be, I can't imagine a better guy to be going out of the Peace Corps service with. So, thank you so much, dude.